The scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. It can be found on page 811 in the Black Bibles. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Beverly, so much. Michaela and uh, music team, that was beautiful. Thank you for that as well. Good morning to you. Uh, great to be with you this morning. Uh, we are taking a bit of a hiatus from our study on the Gospel of Mark for three weeks in February to talk a little bit about our financial resources and God's kingdom. I'm doing this in February on purpose because most of you are thinking, I thought I was safe until at least like mid-November, you know, something like that. See? Uh, Curveball. Uh, but I want to orient you a little bit to where we're going these next three weeks. Um, we're going to talk this morning about our hearts and our hearts with respect to what Jesus calls our treasures and how our hearts can be transformed with respect to our treasures. Next week, we're going to go back into the Old Testament and we're going to talk a little bit about the concept of first fruits, of of giving from the abundance of what the Lord gives us first, not based upon what is left over uh, in the end. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then the third Sunday, we're going to talk about giving as an act of worship. Uh, we still, we just did this. We still have this offering thing in our, in our worship service. And a lot of people give online right now. And so what is this offering? And why do we do that every week? Is that just so somebody can, you know, introduce a new song to us? Or is this just kind of like the musical interlude? Or what's going on here? It's actually an element of worship that is prescribed for us in the uh, New Testament. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And we're going to be really practical in these three weeks about one kind of major takeaway uh, for each of us uh, in, in, in these weeks. So that's where we're going. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you treasure us, your people, so much, Jesus, that you stripped yourself of your glory voluntarily to give us eternal life. We pray, Father, that we would embrace that and treasure it as well in Jesus' name. Amen. You've heard of dad jokes, right? Um, it's a thing, dad jokes. I like dad jokes for two reasons. One is because I'm a dad, and the other is because I like jokes. So it goes to reason that I would really like dad jokes, and I do. So I'm going to tell you two short ones. This is the first dad joke. Today, my son approached me and said, may I have a dollar bill? And I just stood there and wept and wept 
11 years old, and he still doesn't know that my name is Kevin. Dollar bill. That's a really good one, y'all. I mean, seriously, that's a good joke. This next one's worse. So if you didn't like that one, so here's here's the second one. Did you know that the first French fries were not cooked in France? No, they were fried in Greece. All right, I could go, I could do this the entire time, but I'm not. Uh, I'm going to end, actually, with a combo. This is a doozy. This is a combo dad theology nerd joke. So this is serious right here. And there's actually some truth to it, as there is to any joke. Uh, A lot of people ask me now, you know, they know that I grew up in Mississippi, that I went to Ole Miss. They know that, you know, I've got kids in college. And so they ask me, are you a big Ole Miss fan? And I tell them, and I have to apologize at the outset to all the Aggies here. I tell them that, you know, actually my, my heart, my, my, my loyalties have really been transferred to UT pretty, pretty much. And, and they, that shocks them. Where's your loyalty? They're aghast. They're incredulous. And I say, well, look, I'm a Christian and I want to obey the Bible. And the Bible says, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Right? And there's some measure of truth to that. There's a lot that I treasure that is now in Austin at UT. Two of my oldest children are there. And if I'm honest with myself, something else that I treasure also resides in Austin. It is a gigantic portion of our family's money, you know, that, that, that goes there. Like a vacuum, whoosh, you know, gets sucked out. And so things that happen at the University of Texas actually matter to me now, right? I find myself on Twitter on National Signing Day trying to figure out how many four- and five-star athletes they just signed to play football. And, and I come to the conclusion that it's not enough, you know? Why? Because what happens there matters to me because there are things of mine that are of value that are there. At the end of the day, this is the simple point that Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 6, when he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Particularly where your financial resources go and where your time goes. Those are two diagnostic tools to reveal what it is that you value most highly. And he says there are actually two options here. Either we value the things of this world and we invest our financial resources and we invest our time in the things of this world or we value the advancing rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, what Matthew, Mark, and Luke call the kingdom of God. And therefore we invest our financial resources and our time heavily there. Now it's important for us to understand that this section of teaching that Matthew is laying out here in Matthew chapter 6, which is called the Sermon on the Mount, is a condensed and collected series of teachings that Jesus presented to his disciples early in his ministry. What he did was he took his 12 disciples and he said, I need to tell y'all some things. And so he took them up onto a mountain. And the crowds, who he didn't really... You know, this was not really for them, but everywhere Jesus went, they followed him. The crowds followed, and Jesus taught his disciples, and these crowds eavesdropped. They overheard. And Jesus taught his disciples many things about what life is like under his lordship. So there's a couple of things 
that are important to understand as we launch into this. The first is this. This teaching, this passage that we read and we're going to talk about this morning, as, long as, uh, as well as the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is for disciples. It's not only for the original 12 disciples, but this teaching is for those who have put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is teaching, in other words, for Christians. Second, it is practical teaching for Christians. The Sermon on the Mount presents followers of Jesus a vision of life that is lived, controlled by the Holy Spirit. A life that is lived under the Lordship of Jesus. A life that manifests what Jesus prays for in the Lord's Prayer. That what is true in heaven would also be true on this earth. Or what is true in heaven is also manifested in our lives as followers of Jesus on this earth. So for that reason, some people have called the Sermon on the Mount uh, a vision of the upside-down kingdom, where Jesus takes what we understand the world to be like, what we see the world to be like, what we are like, and he turns it on his head. He turns it upside down. I think it's actually more accurate to say that Jesus sets what is all messed up in this world and in our lives and in our hearts right side up. Because this is a vision of life on this earth that manifests marks of what is true in heaven. And he applies it to a lot of particular things. Loving your enemies, forgiving those who hurt you. And another place that he applies this manifestation of what is true in heaven, also being true on earth, is what he calls our treasures. And we see two things with regarding our treasures. First, earthly treasure is temporary, and therefore not worthy of our hearts. And second, heavenly treasure is eternal, and therefore worthy of all of our hearts. So first, earthly treasure is temporary, and it is not worthy, can't withhold and withstand the weight of our hearts. Jesus lays it out very simply at the end of verse 24. You and I cannot serve both God and money. Now the word translated money there is an Aramaic word that is essentially mammon. Mammon is money personified. It's money with all the things that go into making money. It's, it's money with personality. Ultimately is whatever provides the currency of, of power and influence in any given cultural context. And the problem, according to Jesus is that this mammon is temporary. It is temporary. It goes away. Therefore, it's not worthy of the weight of our hearts. You see, our treasure itself is unsafe. But we put our weight on it because our hearts are unsafe. Our treasure is unsafe, and our hearts are also unsafe. Earthly treasure itself is unsafe. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus warns us. Well, why, Jesus? Why shouldn't we do that? He says, because moth and rust destroy it and thieves break in and steal it. The point is that all earthly treasure is temporary. It is destined to pass away. It passes away either from decay or from rot or from rust, or from theft, or ultimately from our own death. 
early in November, this is a long time ago now actually, on a Saturday morning, Shannon and I woke up, drank some coffee, and we went to the gym to work out. The only time that we work out together is like once a week on Saturdays. And we went, we parked in the parking garage, we went into the gym, we worked out, we came out. I opened the door, you know, to my car with my key fob, and then I shut it and I heard something rattle. And I was like, oh, I got something broken, you know, I need to get this looked at. So I got home, and I was looking at the door, and that was the first time I saw it. What had actually happened was somebody had taken a screwdriver and jammed it into the locking mechanism of the door of my truck and jammed it in there trying to break into my truck. But the only thing that happened was that it pushed the entire lock inside the door frame, thus rattling around in there. This happened in, in the very beginning of November, and it's still there rattling around in, inside my truck because you know I've got a couple of problems. One is I'm really busy, and I don't feel like having to get this fixed. The second is, is like it's just expensive enough to file insurance, but you kind of I'm wondering if I should file insurance, and I'm going back and forth on it. And so in the meantime, I'm driving around with a broken door handle and a rattle in my, in my, in my door, and every time I go to unlock the door of my truck, I get a little bit angry, right? I get a little bit angry for a couple of reasons. One is because I'm kind of like, who does this? I mean, come on, man. Like, seriously, it didn't even work. But second, I get angry because the door handle of my truck is messed up. And people are looking at it like, and I'm afraid people are looking at it going, can't this guy get his car, get his act together? Can't he fix his car, you know? Um, it's something in my heart is tied to this, you know, this broken door handle that I've been living with for the last three months. Why is that? It's because there's something that is residing in my heart that is messed up. Our hearts are unsafe. Verse 24, again, Jesus gets, as he often does, to the heart of the matter. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the point is this. If you don't tame money, money will enslave you. I'll say it again, because I actually think this is true. If you don't tame money, money, money will enslave you. Money will not hesitate to order you around. It will boss you around. It will force you to do its bidding. It will tempt you to do all kinds of things that you never would have thought yourself capable of doing. Money doesn't love you. It doesn't love you. If you do not master it, it will master you. That is the point that Jesus is making. The author, F. Scott Fitzgerald, once wrote something brilliant, and it was in the context of something else that would seek to master people. He himself, as an adult, uh, was deeply and massively self-destructive with respect uh, to his abuse of alcohol. And one time he wrote this about, about alcohol abuse. He said, first, you take a drink. And then the drink takes a drink. And then the drink takes you. It's true. And it's wise. And you can apply that 
to our financial resources. First, you accumulate money. Then the money accumulates money. And then the money accumulates you. We set out to have wealth to serve us, right? To, to, to meet our own demands. But then what happens? It begins to consume more and more of your time. Much more of your, of your, of your, of your best time goes to it. It consumes more and more of your energy, sometimes your health. It consumes more and more of your emotional space. So all of a sudden you find yourself on these highs. and I mean, if you live in Houston and you have anything to do with energy, you know this. Whoop, whoa, whoo, ah! You know, it's like that's, that's the world that we live in. And all of a sudden you're riding this roller coaster of emotional turmoil all the time. So who is serving whom? Who's in charge here after all? That's the question that Jesus would want us to get at. So what's the alternative to being enslaved to money? To being enslaved to mammon? What's the cure for this heart disease that we have? Well, Jesus says it is this. Invest instead in heavenly treasure, which is eternal and worthy of your time and your resources. Heavenly treasures are exactly the opposite of earthly treasures. They are eternally secure and they emerge from transformed hearts. You see, heavenly treasures are eternally secure. In contrast to earthly treasures which rot or rust or are stolen, heavenly treasures last forever. Look at verse 20. Lay up instead for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Sounds great, doesn't it? It's awesome. But then take a step back for a second, because my entire life, I've never had any clue whatsoever what Jesus meant here. Right? Have you? What in the world is a heavenly treasure? My seminary professor, Dan Doriani, defines laying up heavenly treasure as investing in God's causes and investing in God's people. More broadly, the late great pastor-theologian John Stott defines it as this, to lay up treasures in heaven is to do anything on earth whose effect lasts into eternity. So I think if you put those two things together, you understand this. It's actually a call to lay up treasures in heaven is a call to full orb discipleship. So what Jesus is saying here is it is, the, it is the life of following him. It is the life of investing in what is eternally valuable and significant and applying that investment to our financial resources. We can do that in a lot of other areas in our lives, but he's asking us in this passage to pay particular attention to it in the area of our financial resources. Our treasure, like our bodies, belong to the Lord. Our treasure is a tool. It's an instrument. It is to be used for his redemptive purposes. Not simply to be hoarded for power or for pleasure or for safety or for comfort. So maybe God has given you a wonderful home. A great place to live. And if that is the case, praise God. It is a magnificent gift of his goodness and his grace to you. 
But here's the question that this passage would then uh, encourage you to ask. What's that home for? What is that gift for? Is it a, a trophy to, dis- to, to, to be displayed to your neighbors? Is it only a sanctuary for escape for you and your family from life in a hectic world here in Houston? Or is it a tool of the kingdom of God to provide a refuge, not only for yourself and not only for your family, but for others? Maybe those who don't have that refuge. Maybe those who need hospitality and need love and need a warm place and a hot meal and some kindness in the structure and the safety of a home. Another way to ask that is this. Whose kingdom does that home reside in? That's the question. Does it reside in your kingdom or does it reside in God's kingdom? Or maybe God has put you in a position of authority or influence in a company or in a school or in a club or in a neighborhood. And if that is the case, praise God. He has done that on purpose. But what is that position for? Is it for you to exalt yourself, to consolidate your power, to lord your authority over other people, to push them down while you lift yourself up, just to put something else on your ever-expanding resume? Or is it to serve others, to use your power and influence that others might thrive? Another way to ask that question is, whose kingdom are you exercising authority in? Your kingdom or God's kingdom? Those are the kinds of questions that Jesus encourages his followers to ask when it comes to the application of the treasures that he provides for us on this earth. Whose kingdom are we building? Are we building our own personal kingdoms Or are we participating with God in building his kingdom? One of those rusts and passes away, one of them endures forever. It's hard teaching. It gets at the root of all of our fears, doesn't it? So how do we do that? How do we have that eternal perspective? How can we joyfully invest in the eternal kingdom of God? Well, there's only one way that we can do it. It is through a transformed heart. That's the point of Jesus' rather cryptic statement here in verses 22 and 23 when he says this. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Again, another cryptic and mysterious saying of Jesus, what is he talking about? Well, a simplest way to think about this is just to ask yourself this question. What's your eye for? Your eye, particularly as Jesus uses metaphors, your eye is a lamp. What is it for? Well, your eyes set direction for your body. Whatever it is that your eyes focus on, your bodies are going to follow. Your eyes set direction. Where your eyes lead, your bodies go. Now, if your eyes are set on the kingdom of God, 
If your eyes are set on the eternal purposes of God, if your eyes are set as you being an instrument in the hands of God to expand his rule and his reign in whatever sphere that you operate and you live in, then your body's going to follow and, he says, your treasures are going to follow. Where your eye leads, your treasures will go. But if our eyes are bad, or another way to translate this is to say if we have dark eyes, if we're blind to this, if we're blinded to what is true, well then we'll set our eyes on our own kingdoms. We'll set our eyes and all of our energy on gaining wealth and maintaining wealth and you know, increasing our standard of living you know, only. So our bodies are going to follow that, our treasures are going to follow that. What we have to have is by the grace of Jesus, LASIK surgery for our spiritual blindness. That is what we need. We need Jesus himself to do eye surgery on us. Or as the prophet Ezekiel says, we need God himself to take our hearts of stone and to replace them with hearts of flesh. And do you know how Jesus did that? He did that by setting his eyes on the cross and never taking his eyes off of that cross. Jesus owns everything. We think our treasure is vast. Try owning the entire universe. That's what he has. And do you know what he did? He stripped himself of it. He voluntarily stripped himself of all of his treasure. Of his glory, becoming one of us, taking on the infirmities and frailties of all of our human life. He stripped himself of all of his relationships and friends. He stripped himself momentarily of his relationship with God the Father who turned his face away from him as he bore our sins on the cross. Why? Because where his treasure is, there his heart follows. His treasure is in fulfilling the will of his Father in heaven, which is to redeem his treasure. You and me. So, that leads us with a question. It's a question that I want to close with this morning. Is Jesus' passion, that single I'd focus to inaugurate and to extend the rule and the reign of God on this earth to make what is true in heaven more true on this earth to redeem a people out of death into life is his passion your passion have the eyes of your heart been transformed to the extent that your great delight, your greatest delight, is seeing the kingdom of God made manifest in people coming to know Jesus Christ, in marriages being rescued from the precipice through the application of the gospel, in the walls between races being broken down, in love overpowering hatred, in the gates of hell themselves crumbling before the advancing church the question is how would you know how would you know if that is your passion well 
here's one diagnostic tool. This is not the only way to know, but this is one diagnostic tool. I would encourage you to go home today or maybe pick a night this week if you've got other things going on. And if you are single, do this by yourself in a quiet place. If you're married, do this with your spouse and take an audit. An audit. It doesn't have to be precise. You'll get the gist pretty quickly, I think, if you actually go through this exercise. But sit down, pop open your checkbook, fire up Quicken, open your calendars, whatever it is that you use. And ask yourself these two questions. What am I or what are we spending our money on? Question one. Question two. What am I or what are we spending our time on? The answer to these two questions are going to give you some diagnosis of where your heart is. If Jesus is to be believed in this passage, the answer to these questions is going to be diagnostic and giving you some sense of what it is that you truly value, that you truly treasure. For example, how much of your treasure went to the work of God in the world in 2019? Through your gifts to this church, to gifts over and above your tithes and offerings, to other missionaries, to other organizations that are working to push forward the the kingdom of God in the world? Did you invest in the work of the church throughout the year last year? Or did you wait? Did you wait until the end to sort of see what was left over, to see what you could afford to give? The answer to that question gives you some hint at where your heart is. Or did you assume last year that someone else was just going to do it? Someone else was going to carry that weight? Does that give you some indication of where your heart is? But it's not only money, it's also time. Did you have time in your life last year to invest in making relationships with your family and with other parts of the body of Christ deeper and more fruitful? Did you have time to serve the Lord last year? Or was your time consumed by working harder and harder and harder and longer and longer and longer to sustain your lifestyle or to upgrade your lifestyle? What does that say about where your heart is, what you treasure the most? You can also ask a follow-up question to that. If you did forsake relationships last year, your marriage, your parent-child relationship, your, your friendships... Ask this question, was it worth it? How are your relationships today compared to this time last year? Are they stronger? Are they the same? Are they weaker for lack of attention? Maybe it's a double whammy. And I say this as one who has a, you know, a, a child playing you know, lacrosse in College Station right now. He's got his own car, which is why I'm there. So, you know, pot black. If, I, if y'all could see me, I would stand on the floor for this sermon because we're all in this together. But this is something that's actually important for all of us to think about. Our sports and our activities for our children can be consuming with respect to both our resources and our time. They can take a substantial portion of our financial resources and a substantial portion of our time away from worship and away from relational development. So if that is what we are investing in with respect to our children, what does that say about our hearts? You can add a a, a further question to that. If that is the investment that you are making in the lives of your children, is taking them regularly away from the worship of God, 
are their relationships with the Lord closer this year than they were this time last year for a lack of teaching and of fellowship and of the church? Third question, which one of those is going to last into eternity? And which one of those is destined to rot and to rust and to pass away? I have no idea what the answer to those questions is for you. No idea. But I actually did this last week. And I'm going to tell you something. It was not pretty. It was not pretty. So my encouragement to you, though, is to not allow yourself just to get pulled along or pushed about the tide of our, of our culture. The city of Houston at, at, at root encourages you to get on a train on these tracks and just to plow ahead into what this place values and to not think about it. Because if you think about it, you might get off the train and you might start thinking about other things and your life might be transformed and your relationships might be transformed and your neighborhood might be transformed and all kinds of things would happen. But our culture is counting on you not asking any questions. It really is. It's counting on you just putting your head down and grinding and trying to make as much money as you possibly can. Trying to provide as many activities for your children as you possibly can. Just get on the tracks. Don't ask any questions. Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh. Ask all the questions. Ask all the questions. Because one track is going to rot And one track is going to last into eternity. And if you actually get off the train for a little while and you watch it and you ask questions, here's what's going to happen. It's going to freak you out. It's going to shock you. And it's going to totally freak you out. And if when it does, as it should, there's good news. Remember that no matter where you are in this journey, No matter where you are with your financial resources and with your time, remember, Jesus gave up all of his treasure. He gave up all of his treasure for you. What does he value? He values a relationship with you. Where his treasure is, there his heart will also be. Jesus' heart is with you you it is beating with you rest in that good news that if you are in Christ by faith you are truly treasured by God himself and therefore you you individually are held eternally secure and because of that Because nothing can change your eternal security in Jesus Christ you're free You're free to get off the train. You're free to open your hands. You're free to invest your financial resources and your time in the kingdom of God that others may be eternally secure as well. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for everything that you have done to give us an eternal relationship with you. Free us. Free us from the enslavement of our culture. Lord Jesus, please free us. We are not asking enough questions. I am not asking enough questions. Help us, Father, to so value you, to so value your work in this world, 
that you will open our hearts, that you will open our hands to invest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.